So we are incredibly honoured that Professor Megan Davis, one of the authors of the Uluru Statement, will now deliver the opening keynote on First Nations voice and the right to be heard. So Professor Megan Davis is Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous and Professor of Law here at the University of New South Wales. Professor Davis is an expert member of the United Nations Human Rights Council's Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Professor Davis is a constitutional lawyer who was a member of the Referendum Council and the expert panel on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution. Megan is a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Law and the Australian Academy of Social Sciences and a Commissioner on the Australian Rugby League Commission. Crucially, Megan supports the North Queensland Cowboys and the Queensland Maroons. We are absolutely delighted and privileged to um, hear from Megan Davis this morning, so please make her very welcome. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for that um, <laughs> introduction, especially the important part about rugby league. Um, so I'll just put a timer on because everybody knows I tend to rant a little bit when I'm talking about constitutional recognition. Um, so thank you, Tanya and Poppy, um, for the, uh, uh, well, the invitation to speak um, about Uluru as the opening keynote. Um, and I just wanted to also um, pay my respects to country and also to any Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander brothers or sisters in the audience today. Um, so I wanted to do two things today in terms of the theme of the politics of listening. Um, and I suppose um, this morning I kind of woke up in a particular mindset because today the Joint Select Committee, the, the Parliamentary Committee um, set up after Uluru to progress the reforms that um, uh, were set out in the Referendum Council report. Um, hands down its report today, um, a joint parliamentary committee report, so both um, uh, uh, senators um, and members of the House of Reps um, with cross-party representation um, will release a report that um, will be the eighth report on constitutional recognition in eight years. Um, so, so I'll just, by way of explanation, um, say that the first one was the expert panel in 2012 then we had the Anderson Review in 2014. Then we had the first Joint Select Committee and they handed down three reports, um, an interim report, a progress report and a final report across 2014 and 2015. We had the Referendum Council report last year, 2017, and then two Joint Select Committee reports. So this year we've had one, um, a progress report, and today they hand down their final report. So eight reports in eight years. And this, um, this report will be another can-kicking exercise. It will, be, um, it will be the parliament kicking the can down the road um, because they're unable to, um, to... Well, I wouldn't say resolve this issue. They, they, they refuse to listen. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. So what I wanted to talk about... I, I wanted to start and talk by, by talking about our process because I think... Some people know about the process of the Referendum Council and the dialogues, but, but many don't. And I think the process is really critical to understanding the reforms. Um, and also, but most importantly, the process is really critical to understanding the exigency of a voice to Parliament. Um, and it's no surprise then 
um, in advocating for a legal reform such as a voice to parliament that a parliamentary committee doesn't quite get it, but also the, the, the way in which law reform is done in parliamentary committees is such that it's, it's not going to progress this, this particular reform because those conventional law reform processes um, aren't really set up to, to do that. Um, uh, which is why the politics of listening is so important because the key issue here for constitutional recognition is really political leadership. So that's the first thing I'm going to do, just talk about process, and I realise I've almost taken up my 40 minutes with my intro. Um, and then the second part, I just want to kind of wrap up things by reflecting on the politics of listening and, and some of what's happened post um, the, the issuing of the Uluru Statement um, from, from the heart. So, so that's what I'm going to do, process and then reflections on the politics of listening and, and then wrap that up. But, um, but um, it is a very emotional day, I think, for a lot of people. Um, we were never in favour of a JSC dealing with this because we knew it would be a can-kicking exercise. So, 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 so in some ways it's really expected, um, the, the report today. Um, in any event, so if we just um, think about the process over the past eight years, I've said eight reports in eight years, when we think about this recognition project, people kind of have two starting points. Um, one is John Howard and the 1999 preamble, uh, or, or some people say it's Julia Gillard, the hung parliament and her creation or establishment of the expert panel on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the constitution. Um, and, and, and I should have said in my introduction that, that these reflections are reflections of mine having been in that eight-year process on both the expert panel on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution and on the Referendum Council. So, so it's, it's the kind of reflections of someone who's been very deeply involved in the, the kind of legal analysis but also the, the, the kind of politics um, of it. So there's two starting points people use. But, but, but we, um, we, we say, and certainly this is what was discussed in the dialogues, that the idea of a, a voice to parliament, um, a treaty, um, all of these notions of recognition have actually been advocated for by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples for decades and decades and decades. There's nothing new or original that came out of um, the Referendum Council's work. Nothing, nothing at all. Um, so um, part of... That analysis, anyway, is this complex legal and political concept of recognition, which I'll, I'll, I'll touch upon um, in a moment. So the two starting points are Howard, um, and in, with, with respect to the Republic referendum, he, um, he proposed to insert a new um, preamble to the Australian Constitution, or should I say the first preamble to the Australian Constitution, into the Constitution, the Australian part, not the British part, um, and in that preamble, he sought to recognise multiple polities and values. Um, of course, the proposal was subject to much um, contestation and, and ridicule, I suppose. But the one, the one line that addressed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander recognition um, was objected to by both the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission and the kind of cultural authority across the country at the time so all of the land councils objected to that line as well. So the point, and, and Howard proceeded, despite people objecting to that language of recognition. 
So the point, I think it's an important point just to park there that in 1999 they did proceed to a referendum with a formula of words that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership and cultural authority rejected at the time. Um, and that was a red flag for us as the recognition process has gone on because we knew if they went down a particular path that they were likely to go to a referendum on a symbolic or minimalist re uh, reform without our, without our agreement. Um, so the second starting point is, is Gillard in 2010 when she had to negotiate um, a, a power arrangement with the Greens um, and the independent Rob Oakeshott. As a consequence of that exchange of letters with respect to that power arrangement, the Greens and the independent Rob Oakeshott asked Gillard to move on the multi-party support for, for recognition. So Gillard did that. She constituted by Christmas of 2010 an expert panel on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the constitution. It was originally called the expert panel on Indigenous recognition, but that was objected to by um, uh, uh, people as we moved around the country. Um, and I mean, I got my phone call for that committee on Christmas Eve, so they moved very quickly to set up that committee. Um, and so this expert panel was the first kind of, in, in a part, it really starts this eight-year process, the eight reports in eight years. So they did inherit this word recognition, and we've sought to find out why it is they chose that word. Recognition, as I don't have to tell a room full of um, political um, scientists and philosophers, is a very complex legal and political um, concept. Um, it's been hugely problematic for, for us, although it has a really um, uh, quite a deep and rich um, history um, and um, I suppose acknowledgement in other parts of the world in Australia the public understanding of the notion of recognition has re rarely risen above the dictionary meaning of acknowledgement. So we know that recognition, um, if we, we look at that literature, sits on a spectrum. You know, at one end you've got what we call symbolic recognition, at the other end you have substantive recognition, or should I say at one end you've got weak, what we call weak form recognition, and the other end we have strong form recognition. And of, you know, for constitutional lawyers, we explain that in terms of what you can compel government to do or not do. So at one end, it compels government to do nothing. So a statement of recognition. It's primarily why it's rejected by Aboriginal communities because it doesn't compel government to do a thing. And then at the other end, very strong forms of um, recognition that does compel government to do something or prohibits them from doing something. But things like treaties, autonomous arrangements, you know, maybe reserve seats, designated seats, or all this notion of a voice to parliament. So there's a spectrum of reforms. And in Australia, this word recognition and the public debate, it's always kind of simmered around the level of acknowledgement, meaning a statement in the constitution, um, and all the very messy business of this notion of race, the concept of race being repugnant, um, and therefore the race power and race provisions must be deleted from the constitution. Um, it, it's rarely shifted from that until the Uluru Statement. Um, so, so we were... They, they gave us the language of recognition and, and that's really that recognition project from expert panel to, to today. The key thing about the expert panel in terms of recognition is that it was an expert panel who chose the reforms. So we chose the reforms. 
We didn't go out to Aboriginal communities and ask them what they thought meaningful recognition was. We just decided what that was, put a submission out, or sorry, put a paper out and called for public submissions. So that's a really critical point to distinguish from the deliberative process of, of, of the referendum council dialogues. And I say that too because the Joint Select Committee's report today, you know, will say, oh look, we got, you know, 30 submissions which reflects you know, societal division and uncertainty on reform, therefore we, we must have a design process first. But they, in fact, in the interim report, they asked 80 questions of the public and, and of course, dutiful non-Indigenous academics responded. Um, so when they say we've got all of these submissions, the bulk of them don't come from Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. They come from, you know, academics and scholars and institutions who, who sought to answer those questions. Although there were many, there was Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander input, um, but but the point I'm make, making is that simply that these debates and conversations are very much shaped um, shaped by these processes. Um, so so the expert panel um, really focused on this statement of recognition um, because that's what John Howard had done in 1999. So there was you know, huge debate about, well, we must recognise people in the Constitution. And it's important to say that back then, during the expert panels and during the Uluru Dialogues, um, the community was pretty consistent and not wanting to be recognised in that way. I'm just going to drink some water. Is that okay? <laughs> um, it's just 12 minutes. I've still got... <laughs> um, also, the expert panel was set up not long after um, the Cartonieri decision in the High Court, which appeared to, although didn't, confirm the capacity of the race power, Section 5126, which is the power that was amended in the 1967 referendum, but appeared to, although not certain, with great certainty, confirm the, that the race power um, enables the federal parliament to pass adverse discriminatory laws. So at that point, when you look at Aboriginal politics and Aboriginal law reform ideas and Aboriginal discourse, that case, the Hindmarsh Island case, that power dominated the thinking around reform, which is why the expert panel focused on deletion of the race power and amendment, sorry, an insertion of a new head of power that provides the federal parliament with the competency to pass laws for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's matters, the deletion of section 25 in the constitution, which is really a dead letter, the insertion of a statement of recognition of um, First Peoples occupation and continued survival in this new head of power, and then the substantive reform was a non-discrimination clause in the constitution. Um, and again, because that was aimed at the, the primary concern of that period, was that the federal parliament can pass discriminatory laws. And we, we know that because of um, the native title amendments, um, which were extraordinarily destructive in terms of um, Mabo, the post-native title legislative arrangements and the capacity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples um, to, to own the land and use the land um, for economic development. So that was absolutely destructive. Um, we know that originally the intervention wasn't done under the race power, it was done under the plenary power, section 122 of the, of the constitution, 
But in any event, what really occupied our minds was that the federal parliament can pass laws to discriminate or single out Aboriginal people for adverse treatment. And I think a key point there was simply, the message was simple, right? We want to insert a provision in the constitution that makes the federal parliament bound by the Racial Discrimination Act. So we, what the argument was, was that all states and territories are bound by the RDA and the Commonwealth Parliament is not. And, and when we took that out to the Australian people, because it wasn't an Indigenous-specific design consultation process, they quite liked that idea, right? Because people don't like politicians. We said we're going to bind the federal parliament on this point and people, it was quite a popular reform. I mean, even at Uluru, it was second to voice to parliament. So, so, so it, was a, it was a relatively pop popular reform um, with the Australian people. Although the voice does, um, does poll higher than a non-discrimination clause. So, so that's where we were. And really, the last thing I'd say about the expert panel in terms of recognition is we fenced ourselves in to this day, the entire eight years, because the expert panel chose four criteria by which they would assess proposals for reform, and every single body has adopted the same four criteria since then. And they are that any reform or recognition must contribute to a unified and reconciled nation, that any reform proposal um, for insertion in the Constitution must benefit to and accord with the wishes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, three, that it is capable of being supported by a majority of Australian people across the broad social and political spectrum, and four, it has to be technically and legally sound. So I think um, those four criteria are important because, as I said, we chose the reforms as the expert panel. We also didn't go out and specifically consult and deliberate with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Um, and that's why the Referendum Council's work was different, because they again adopted the four criteria, but we said that our sole priority was to do what the, ref what the expert panel didn't do. We're, we are only going to focus on the second criteria. We are only going to focus on does the reform benefit to and accord with the wishes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? So by 2015, 2016, with the Referendum Council, you were actually retrofitting what it was that Aboriginal people actually wanted. And that was a problem by that point because a recognition process is between two entities, and people have heard me say this multiple times, it's between the to be recognised, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and the state, the Australian people. But you must have the First Nations people agree to the reform. You, you must, because otherwise it's not recognition. But the case was that by mid-2015, we were and had firm confirmation, we were looking down the barrel of a referendum on a statement of recognition that we didn't want and that they were happy to proceed on. And that's why it was important to set up the council and actually go out and say to people, well, what is it that you want? So um, post-expert panel leading up to the Uluru Dialogues, Post-expert panel was, is about 2012 to 2015, a really complex period. They passed this Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Recognition Act in 2013 um, before Labor lost office and, I mean, effectively it was a can-kicking exercise, but what Labor wanted to do was pass it with bipartisan support so that when the Liberal National Party got in, um, that they would not just drop recognition. 
Um, they set up a, the, the second review called the Anderson Review, in which John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister um, and leader of the National Party, um, travelled around Australia um, reviewing things. <laughs> That's really technical analysis of that report. Um, then they set up the Joint Select Committee, which did its three reports. They also had the Recognise campaign over the top of that. Um, I won't say much about that except to say it, um, it had a counter effect in our communities. So while Qantas had big neon R's on their planes, um, that was just set inciting um, um, a, great, um, uh, a great pushback from our communities on recognition. Because in the absence of a model, recognised could only talk vaguely about reform. So they spoke about removing race and they spoke about recognition. And, and as we know, we hadn't actually at that point really known what it was that people wanted. And so we had this problem of the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community rejecting recognition. Um, but, but corporates with raps and, um, and lots of non-Indigenous Australians embracing recognise. Um, I remember the first time the AFL players and the NRL players at the All-Stars game started wearing the neon R and Indigenous social media would just go into meltdown. Um, and that, but that melt, those in, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media was absolutely critical to turning the ship around. Um, so po politicians would come to us and well, we'd go to them and say, we can't do this because, you know, the mob aren't in favour of these reforms and, and especially not symbolism, especially something that doesn't do anything. Um, and they would say, well, never heard of it. And primarily because people, they don't look, they don't read the Koori Mail, they don't look at Aboriginal social media. But um, things like Indigenous X and, um, you know, um, uh, Tiger Bales and Kamara, like Indigenous media was so critical to pushing back on, um, on what was looking like symbolic recognition. Um, the really the biggest thing um, before I move on to my reflections, I suppose, was the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, was, was the Prime Minister, um, Tony Abbott, coming in and his um, government and bureaucracy taking a razor to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs. What they did was effectively, and this is a very um, non-technical way of explaining the reform, but they took all of the Aboriginal money for programs, etc., from across the departments and they pulled it in one um, bucket and then everybody had to reapply for their money. So what you saw was organisations fall over, you know, institutions that have been around since the post, you know, Gough Whitlam self-determination era, you saw really important services fall over. When we went out to the communities during the dialogues, they were just gutted, the communities. They were de they'd been devastated by that IAS. Um, and what happened was then lots of non-Indigenous orgs applied for the money too. So then you had this perverse situation where places like Yarrabah, for example, once ran certain programs and overnight Save the Children had the money and was, you know, driving in from Cairns to the community and, um, and, and running programs and services that Aboriginal people once run themselves. So you saw this dismantling of the Aboriginal political domain. So the, the voicelessness, the lack of autonomy, the things that people raised in the dialogues, um, um, a lot came as a consequence of the IAS. And then you had, at the same time as they're purporting to want to recognise Aboriginal people, 
you actually had big corporations with RAPs, Reconciliation Action Plans, who all applied to the IAS to fund their RAP initiatives. I mean, it's, 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 it's cruel. You had Swimming Australia, the NRL, the AFL, um, the, you know, big, big corporations, banks, all applying, and departments, like health department and, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but you can see it all in the Australian National Audit Report that, that illustrates just how devastating the impact was. But we didn't really appreciate it until you went out to the regions and you just heard how um, disempowered people were. But, but the IAS is the key point to understanding the shift from non-discrimination and the race powers to a voice to parliament or some way of enhancing Aboriginal participation in decisions that are made about their lives. So um, that was really um, the game changer IAS. That's why reforms shifted. To this day, you hear senators and politicians go, what happened to the race power? And they're not paying attention to what people are saying on the ground, which is the race power is not our priority. Because if you reform the race power, the change is the same as the status quo. Legally, you can still discriminate under any replacement power or an altered race power because the High Court will defer to, par to Parliament, to, to, to parliamentary sovereignty. The, the, the complex, it's complex, but the change is the same as the status quo. And that complexity was discussed in the dialogues over three days, and that's why it didn't become a priority. Their disempowerment and their lack of voice became the priority. So the last thing I'd say about that period is simply we had a leaders meeting in mid-2015, just before Abbott got kicked out and Turnbull started, where a bunch of Aboriginal leaders met at Kirribilli, it's called the Kirribilli meeting, and they issued a statement to Shorten and Abbott. And they said that constitutional housekeeping, minimalist reform was not acceptable to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So what they said was, any reform must involve substantive change to the Australian Constitution. It must lay the foundation for fair treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples into the future. And they said this, a minimalist approach that provides preambular recognition, so a statement of recognition, removes Section 25 and moderates, moderates the race power, does not go far enough and will not be acceptable to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So that is the leadership saying that at that point, mid-2015. Very clear, which is why when Turnbull rejects it and they say Labor and Liberal, Liberals came out and said, well, this is unexpected all the way. It wasn't unexpected, it's just nobody listens. This was a political statement issued by key leaders across the country saying we reject that form of recognition. Even the social justice commissioners, I think Dodson, Kalma, Gouda and Oscar, in their submission to the current Joint Select Committee, their recommendation is for those minimalist reforms. So they go entirely against the self-determination express at Uluru and they say that the reform must be preambular recognition, remove section 25 and moderates the race power. This year the social justice commission has said that. So the politics of listening is really complex because it's not just the parliament in terms of that public institution, but it's also the Australian Human Rights Commission as a public, you know, publicly funded public institution. Political elites in Australia do not listen. 
So anyone who said that Uluru was unexpected was simply not paying attention. So the Referendum Council comes in and we decide, okay, we're going to do one thing. We're just going to focus in on that one criteria. What do Aboriginal people want? So now we've got to go out and, and talk to them. What we didn't want to do after, after all of this post-ATSIC environment in which people are oppressed by consultations from local government and state government and all of these ticker box, fly-in, fly-out consultations, was to go out and lecture them and, and, and just do some faux consultation and leave. So then we had to reflect on how are we going to ask them to talk to us and, and how are we going to listen. So we designed this process, however flawed, that we will run a sample of mob in a number of regions through a deliberative dialogue process that involved legal assessments, civics education, political assessments of reforms, um, have people have that dialogue and then come out the other end with something. So we were hemmed in, of course, by terms of reference. We couldn't just do what we wanted. So we said to the Prime Minister and Opposition Leader, we're taking out all the expert panel reforms, but we're also, we would like permission to take out treaties, so agreement making, whatever that looks like, because it's not settled what that looks like in Australia. And we're taking out a voice to Parliament. So what is, uh, so an enhanced kind of participation in Australian liberal democracy. And, and we used the UN MRIP report that has about 50 examples of the ways in which liberal democ democracies around the world, so I think with my UN hat on, there's about 194 member states and about 70 to 80 have significant Indigenous populations. How have they accommodated Indigenous voices into their democratic framework, into their decision making? So we took out, you know, the example of the administrative units in Panama and reserved seats in New Zealand and the three Sami parliaments in Norway, Finland and Sweden and the autonomous regions and indigenous ombudsmen in Russia and designated seats in the Duma. What else? Oh, the Latin American um, constitutional recognitions which are duty to consult. So there's a lot of constitutions that have... Um, but they are, they're, of course, they're, they're, they're just ordinary legislation. But... Um, have enshrined in their constitutions this notion of a duty to consult. Um, so we took all of those examples out as well under this framework of voice to parliament. So the opposition leader and Turnbull agreed to those additions. So then we ran people through this deliberative process. The, the design of it was unique because we didn't want to be top down. So we hired IATSIS, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, to run the dialogues for us in terms of engaging local communities to deliver the logistics of the dialogues and invite um, delegates to attend. We did adopt an invitation um, calculus of 60% of invitees must be traditional owners because we wanted the reforms to be underpinned and supported by the cultural authority across the country. So 60% traditional owners, 20% would be local Aboriginal orgs, so legal services, medical services, other, you know, care for, caring for country orgs, many, many orgs, um, childcare orgs, and then 20% is individuals. So it would be like, you know, grannies and young people and just people who, there were lots of walk-offs off the street that just would come in. Um, especially in Cairns. Um, I don't know why. But um, so, so we ran 12. Um, Hobart, they were run by the Tasmanian Aboriginal Corporation, Broome by the Kimberley Land Council, 
Dubbo by the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, Darwin by the Northern Land Council, Perth by the South West Aboriginal Land and Sea Council, Sydney by the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, Melbourne by the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owners Corporation, so the kind of same entity that's running the treaty process there, Cairns, the North Queensland Land Council, Ross River by the Central Land Council, Adelaide by the Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement, Brisbane by a number of orgs, and Thursday Island by the Torres Shire Council and the Torres, um, Strait, uh, the Torres Strait Islander Regional Authority. And then we had a truncated process in Canberra that was hosted by the Ngunnawal Elders Council. And then we ran the National Convention at Uluru last year at the Mudujulu Aboriginal Corporation um, um, at the foot of the rock um, and at Ulara, the, the, the big um, resort. And, and then, of course, the Uluru reforms were issued in a statement, um, Voice Treaty Truth. Um, and the, the Uluru Statement is actually quite a lengthy statement because it includes something that we call our story. And that is we pulled out of all of the dialogues, the history of Aboriginal Australia and compiled a kind of our story that explains Abor Australian history from well, it's Aboriginal Australian history. And it's, it's a, I, I urge you all to look at that. Um, so the voice to parliament is no surprise that it was the number one priority because of the time. Um, people want, um, we spoke about high court processes as opposed to parliamentary processes. People really queried after, you know, decades of native title litigation whether they want to go down the litigation route. That is to say, whatever entrenched rights approach you take, we discussed the likelihood of political support. So we know 116A got no support. Um, but also, you know, some Far North Queensland and Northern Territory groups spoke about wanting to challenge under the RDA the discriminatory elements of CDP. But when they sought advice from senior silks in Brisbane and Darwin, it would cost them 30 to 40 grand to even get the advice and start even contemplating running the litigation. So we talked about the pros and cons of a court-based approach, and then we talked about the political approach, about parliamentary <laughs> sovereignty, about political empowerment, and about the pros and cons of that. So we, that, they were all kind of weighed up, but it was the voice to parliament that, um, that was the most, that was ranked the most, the major priority. Treaty is no surprise because although it's not certain how that works or plays out across the Federation, given state-based treaties are highly vulnerable to the Commonwealth, meaning they can come over the top at any point and disallow any particular provision in a state-based treaty, um, that has always been the main aspiration of um, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community, which is to come to a settlement with, um, with, with the Crown, with the Australian people. The third element, truth, um, was unexpected. We didn't take out Truth Commission as a reform, um, but we had to include it because we, the entire first day was taken up with truth-telling. The only thing I'd note there about the politics of listening is that after Uluru, lots of people have put in submissions and suggested a national truth commission. That is not what people in the dialogues wanted. They, they, it was, it's actually quite interesting, um, their discussion about truth-telling, because a lot of it is done at a local level already. Um, a lot of it is done through land claims and native title work. And what they wanted to do was work in local, in their own area, in their nation, working with their own people their own local councils, et cetera, which they have close relationships with. 
with local historical societies and local libraries and local schools and, and just do it that way. And that eventually that could rise up maybe, we, we talked about that, maybe to some sort of kind of place where that truth-telling would sit under a Makarata commission. But, but, but and I've just published this, I think it's in the Australian Historical Journal, I should know what I published in, um, just, just what that design looks like. Because it's extraordinary to see I've seen so many entities now say, Royal Commission of the Truth and um, National Truth Commission. That is not at all what people wanted. And now I'm destroying the microphone. Okay, so just, um, I mean, I really, I should just try and wrap it up in the last five minutes, but to say um, the following things. In terms of the politics of listening, just a couple of key elements of the dialogues. We ban facilitators, right? Facilitators was a dirty word because they don't listen. Um, and I just rang up saying, oh, we've got awesome facilitators that we have on rotation. And sorry if someone's one of them. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I'd seen them at National Congress meetings and Native Title meetings and you, know, you, need, you needed local community people who understood the local community. So we didn't have facilitators. We had what we called working group leaders or wiggles is what we called them. Um, and they were local people who lived in the area or worked in an org or was a TO. Or, so they knew everyone and they knew the politics of the area. So it had to be someone from, from the region and they worked alongside our constitutional lawyers who we really tried to sit in the back. We did ban all lawyers because at our trial dialogue in Melbourne, at Melbourne Law School, the lawyers were terrible. Like they're just such know-it-alls and they can't help themselves. So you'd go into different working groups and they'd taken everyone down this long path and no one, everyone's like, so they dominate the conversation, they frame it in a particular way. So we pulled lawyers out. We also pulled any significant leaders out. So on the first day in Broome, a very famous leader from up there got up and said, you're all wasting your time, it's never going to happen. Um, and then everyone got despondent and all the youth were in tears. And So we pulled all the leaders because we, did, we didn't need the cynicism of um, old school leaders just saying it's not going to happen. Um, what we did say to them was law reform requires you to suspend your disbelief that this country can change. It requires you to suspend your disbelief that the parliament can't, can't get this across the line. You know we can change a referendum, uh, the constitution, because we did it once. And it was the most successful referendum ever. So we know we can do it. The system and the institutions are set up to change. So although we're in a really, probably, Mick Goodis says, the worst state in policy ever in Australian history, we're asking you to work with us on law reform because to get to the reform, you have to imagine the world can be a better place and you have to imagine that the world can be better for your grannies and for your children. And, and people were very super generous and this is why it's so heartbreaking, the Turnbull thing is people were so generous to suspend their disbelief and work with us for three days on the constitution, which, which intuitively went against so many of their kind of internal kind of beliefs about treaty and sovereignty, but they went along with it. And they came up with such a sophisticated framework. We, were, we weren't astonished, because we know how clever our people are, but um, it was just an extraordinary, extraordinary process um, so we had no facilitators, and I think that's important, and it needed to be community-led. Um, so I won't go through... When I publish this paper, you'll see who, in terms of the philosophy of dialogue, we drew upon. But dialogue was really important to us because we didn't want people to just be discussing pros and cons and then voting. 
So the first time we decided to design the dialogues, I remember some senior leaders going, just get a clicker. Just put up the options and get a clicker and then we'll statistically choose the option. <laughs> and, um, but we had to, you had to take people through a serious legal um, education and civics education process, a serious deliberative process based on lots of constitutional deliberative processes so that at the end they make an informed choice. And, and they made an informed choice. So my last comment, I suppose, was that the post-Uluru climate illustrates, I think, the exigency of a voice to parliament because they just didn't listen. Um, and so I've made the point about Turnbull and the third chamber. I mean, that was just political silliness. Um, you know, we were, we were, the leadership was disappointed with the Social Justice Commissioner's intervention saying, oh, no, 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 it must be a statement of recognition and because their job is to implement international human rights norms. That is their job. Their job is not to make political assessments about political processes in Australia. Their job is to uphold the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And the fundamental norm that underpins the DRIP is the right of self-determination. And that is the right of these people in grassroots communities who don't have a voice, and they don't have a voice on many, many issues, th that is the framework that they came to through a very structured process. Um, today we see the Joint Select Committee handing down its report, as I've said multiple times, eight reports in eight years. I said from the outset that they asked the Australian public 80 questions on what a voice might look like. We've won one battle. They accept that we want a voice to Parliament. So that, that, was, that was absolutely shown in their discussions with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander individuals and orgs. Um, but how do you do that? So the very people who say that the race power is repugnant want to now set up the voice under that power. So to imbue the voice with that Cap the capability to discriminate against people on the basis of race. We say that they should enshrine this voice um, to Parliament in the Constitution because that is meaningful recognition to the sample of First Nations peoples who participated in the, in the Uluru process. It may be the case that they seek to go out and, 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 bed, and, and bed down that process by running more dialogues to see and to test whether those reforms um, are sustained. Um, but you don't need the full design of the voice to go to a referendum. What you're enshrining is a norm of listening. A norm of listening. That is what we want them to do. We don't want them to kick the can down the road and spend two to three years getting non-Indigenous experts, technicians, political scientists into the room to tell us what it should look like. We say enshrine the norm of listening in the Constitution and then defer the detail to Parliament down the track. It's a common constitutional technique called the decision to defer. Um, one example is the High Court of Australia. It was enshrined in the Constitution. It was set up by legislation later. We don't think you can run this process in 100 days like they want to do. We don't think you can design it by the second years because they've got to run to an election in the third year. We're saying enshrine that principle and then run a process with, with First Nations peoples, not the peak bodies in Canberra, Sydney and Melbourne, 
not with Congress, who did not fare well in the dialogues as a representative voice, go back to communities, get out there into the regions and talk to people on the ground and ask them what they want because they are the ones that live under this um, uh, framework um, of, of non-freedom that, that now exists in, in Australia. We've run two dialogues on what the design of the voice might look like in far north Queensland. We've run it with the Cape York Land Council and the North Queensland Land Council. And the arrangements are so complex in terms of what it would look like at a local level, um, a state level, a federal level. It can be done, of course. The multiple legislative frameworks, the PBCs, the native title frameworks, it can be done, but it's very complex and it can't be rushed. And that's my fear about the, the not listening and the bureaucracy. The, not just the law reform processes, but the public policy processes are terrible. I know that's not a technical word, but they're terrible in this country. And I don't want us to get to this point where we've turned around the ship. So we're not doing symbolism anymore. That's great. Turn the ship around. We're trying to do something functional and structural and they're going to stuff it up because of political timetables. Um, so today the Joint Select Committee will bring out its next report. Um, and I suppose to end with, because I know Tony wants me to take some questions, that the report is an example of, again, and I know it's called the politics of listening, but the politics of not listening. Um, what they've done is to kick the can down the road and they've used conventional law reform processes uh, to do that. Um, we say that the multiple submissions that they're saying reveal division and uncertainty in the community about the voice actually show remarkable unanimity and consensus about what a voice should look like. You know, that it's at the local, you know, state and federal level, that it has complex arrangements in the federal parliament and the state parliament. You, you know, there's a lot of commonality. Um, and instead of looking at that and thinking about a pathway to a referendum, um, they've just kicked the can. The final point I'll just make is really the most, and I tweeted this early this morning, really the most important document this week that's been released is probably the press statement by Bill Shorten. Because if the Labor Party is elected, they have actually set out a pathway to the referendum. We've been able to smoke them out on the Republic. That is to say, we say this issue needs to be resolved before a Republic. It would be utterly repugnant for them to go to a Republic referendum before dealing with this. We, we felt and we still feel that the JSC report is a part of that kicking the can so they can shift the Republic through, simply by saying, oh, it's too complex, you can't go to a referendum without the design. Um, but um, 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 in any event, um, I think that when, I think the core message is, you know, shortened statement is, is, is very heartening for us. Um, um, more so than the JSC, um, but the JSC report is absolute proof that what the people said in the dialogues and what was endorsed at Uluru was correct. You know, that the parliament doesn't listen, it can't listen, and, they, and we need a structure set up so that um, they're compelled to listen. Thank you.